Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. The risk of retribution from the Taliban is grave. Afghans who have supported Canada are routinely and deliberately subject to threats of violence, torture, and death, as are their families. And these threats are only intensifying. Well, good afternoon. Rob Breckenridge with you here along the Chorus Radio Network. That is the voice of Immigration Minister Marco Mendocino along with the Defense Minister, the Foreign Affairs Minister, announcing today that Canada is going to fast-track the resettlement of Afghans who had previously worked with Canadian forces in Afghanistan as uh, interpreters, as advisors. And the danger is becoming very real and very serious for those who helped Canadian forces. The United States, NATO allies, withdrawing all ground troops from Afghanistan by the end of August. And we're seeing the Taliban resurgent across much of the country and very much on the hunt for what they view as collaborators. So there's a real urgency to this issue. There's been pressure on the government for some time to step up and do the right thing here. You know, we heard the words uh, from the minister today, moral obligation, which I think it really is. I don't know how else you can look at this situation. Afghans who risk their lives to work alongside Canadians. How can Canada turn its back on them? So it's good to hear that we're not going to do so. A lot of details withheld today. Uh, certainly there are security concerns in, in uh, this kind of an undertaking. Uh, joining us uh, for some thoughts, though, on this decision today, the importance of this issue. We're pleased to welcome the program. Uh, someone who's been um, you know, one of the leading voices in pushing the government to do the right thing here, Dave Morrow, is a retired Canadian infantry officer, a veteran, a fitness coach, an entrepreneur, much more at uh, his website, DaveMorrow.net. Dave, great to have you with us here. Thanks so much for joining us here today. Thanks so much for having me. Well, and, and certainly thank you for your service as well. You served in Afghanistan in uh, 2010 and 2011, so you've been on the ground. You know, you've seen firsthand the important role that these these Afghans played. Uh, so your thoughts, first of all, your reaction to the announcement today? Well, it's kind of surreal, to be honest. It's been a long time that uh, myself and, and other members of our team have been trying to make something happen at the governmental level uh so we've knocked on a lot of doors a lot of phone calls and uh finally we've we've got to this point which is really uh impressive to be honest because this was really led grassroots with people that just felt that like you said earlier this is a moral obligation and for me i was really concerned about my own interpreter and uh, it's grown into something much bigger and uh, we're definitely going to have a a broader impact on a lot more lives than, than originally expected yeah, look, and I don't want to take away from the significance of the announcement today. It was the right decision. But, you know, the, it, that moral obligation has been obvious for a long time. The growing danger has been obvious for some time. I mean, this seems like the kind of decision that should have been made, made weeks or, or even months ago. Why did it take us to this point? 
It's a good question, and I don't have any answers uh, for you, unfortunately. And that was a question that we were asking ourselves uh, many times over. But now that we have the decision, now our focus is really to ensure that those individuals that are still reaching out to us that need help, that need assistance, are well looked after, and that we can provide a, a, a really effective resettlement process uh, through uh, help of uh, organizations like True Patriot Love and uh, generous corporations like Scotiabank. It was, we had a, a resettlement program before. But there was a lot of criticism that it wasn't it wasn't nearly enough, right? Well, the the details that I'm aware of for our, our, our former program, which ended in uh, 2012, um, are, are not complete, in my opinion. There, uh, okay. there was apparently 800 Afghans that were able to come over, and obviously there there had to be some family members there. But unfortunately, some did fall through the cracks. Anecdotally, there are some really tragic stories of um, some Afghans that just. Um, you know, couldn't cope with Canadian life. A lot didn't uh, get the chance to bring their families over and can only imagine how heartbreaking that would be if you come over but your family is still in danger in uh, in, in Afghanistan. So this time around, we, we really don't want to make the same mistakes. So that's why we're, uh, we sought out uh, help from uh, organizations like True Patriot Love and, and other corporations in Canada. Yeah, it's been interesting to read. I mean, there have been some grassroots issues and, and various groups using contacts on the ground in Afghanistan to just do whatever we can to to you know get these individuals protection. But ultimately, it, it's going to need the, uh, the the government to step up here today. So the right decision. And look, I mean, it, there's there's still time to do this, right? It's it's not too late, is it? In my opinion, we, we still have time, yes. Um, I mean, our one of our hard stop dates is essentially the American uh, pullout date, which is the, the end of August, like you mentioned earlier. So for us, that is that is a clear date that we need to get moving before that, because after that date, there's, there's clearly no more military support. So they really will be on their own. Um, so that's why we need to speed this process up. And uh, we're glad that the decision was made today that uh, they're going to go ahead and, and make this happen so that we can have a process that's not only uh, timely and, and quick, but also uh, safe and, and make sure that the individuals that we're going to rescue are, are rescued in a, in a coordinated manner. That's the thing. I mean, the announcement's the first step, and there, there's a lot uh, logistically that goes into something like this, right? That's correct. I mean, a large-scale operation like this, I, I don't have any experience in. However, uh, being a former uh, member of the Canadian Armed Forces and, a, and an officer of the of the forces as well, you know, planning on a small scale to a big scale, you need to ensure there are a few things that are in place, and one one of them is security. So that alone is a, is a huge consideration. And uh, although we don't have any any uh, significant role uh, as an organization uh, in that in that process. There are some very, very competent individuals that have been looking at this and have been planning and, and behind the scenes, and, and I'm sure we'll have a, a, a very good program, a very good plan, a very good mission, um, and uh, we're anticipating a, a, a lot of Afghan boots showing up here in Canada to start a brand new life with their families. Yeah, and you know, I mean, the thing is, this was a potential, as many have said, a you know, a humanitarian disaster in the making here, and I think it would have been to Canada's eternal shame if we'd stood by and allowed this to happen. But I mean, you know, for you and others who served in Afghanistan, right? There's that that personal aspect to it, where 
you know, they, they played such an important role in you being able to do the work you did there and those relationships, those bonds that were created on top of that. I mean, it's it's very real. Just from your perspective, David, you can put it into words for us. I mean, what it meant to you guys, you know, to have these interpreters and advisors being you know willing to work with you and just how, how valuable that was. It's a great question. I mean, for me, you know, my interpreters were my friends, essentially, even though we had a professional relationship. When you interact with somebody on a daily basis in a war zone, there's a certain seriousness that comes with it. And in the military, we don't throw around the term brother uh, lightly. So, you know, calling my interpreter brother is just a, is, is easy. It's, 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 it's something that you won't forget uh, over the course of your life, the, the, the amount of help that they were able to provide us the uh, in, the the support, the insights into the culture, uh, just being able to learn about their day-to-day, what their families are like, and vice versa. You gain a whole new perspective from an entirely different part of the world and, and you know, entirely different culture. But at the end of the day, we're all human beings. And uh, it, for me, it, it, was, it was gut-wrenching to not be able to help my friend who's stuck in a war zone and actively being threatened with death, including his family. And if you know, put that in context to step in his shoes, if that were to happen here, what would you do for your friend to try and get them out of a, a really bad situation? And so it's just been, it's, it's, it's been a hard 10 years, let's put it that way, but we finally have a, uh, a, a result that's, that, that's looking very, very optimistic. And um, it's, been a, it's been a good day overall for myself and I think a lot of veterans out there are breathing a sigh of relief. Yeah, it is a good day, and I, I think we shouldn't we shouldn't lose sight of that. I mean, it it is it is sad though at, at one level, isn't it? That you know that it's come to this that you know that the Taliban are starting to take back you know bigger chunks of the country, and that you know the situation exists at all. I mean, what about you know that that must be frustrating on that side of it though? It can be. So personally, this is uh, this, this is how I I end my mission uh, seeing. You know, my interpreter, seeing his family, and I'm sure for a lot of other veterans as well, we know that we've lost the territory that we gained during, you know, 14 years of fighting. That's, that's a given. That's, that's over with. Uh, we need to move on, uh, as hard as it may, may be. So we can, we can gain a little solace, a, a little bit of comfort in the fact that we are going to be able to have new Canadians show up here that put their lives on the line for our country already that are some of the craftiest, most intelligent and hardworking people that I've ever encountered in my life. And I'm sure they're going to bring a huge, huge amount of value to our country. And I'm proud to have been a part of that. Yeah, there's going to be some emotional reunions, uh, I suspect, in, in the weeks and months ahead. Uh, so we'll leave it there for now. Uh, as mentioned, DaveMorrow.net. Uh, Dave, thanks so much for making some time for us here. And uh, again, thanks, sir, for your service to this country. Much appreciated. Cheers. Thank you. All the best. Uh, There you go. That is uh, retired infantry officer uh, Dave Morrow, uh, served in Afghanistan in uh, 2010 and 2011. So, you know, kind of the firsthand account of this, the role, the relationship, the bond, you know, that existed between these Canadian uh, soldiers and these uh, Afghans who were working side by side with them. So, you know, you can understand why these soldiers are kind of at the the front of this and saying, look, we got to we got to do right by them. But all, yeah, as Canadians, we should all be demanding this, regardless of your position on the mission in Afghanistan or any of that, that foreign and defense policy stuff that we can disagree on. What's right is right. 
and Afghans who risk their lives to work with and support Canadians, we got to turn around and be there for them. So the government had to kind of be pushed into doing the right thing. Again, let's let's chalk this up as a win. This is a good news announcement today. The conversation around cults and bringing leaders of cults to justice, holding them accountable for how they victimize individuals. And the story of Nexium has been very illustrative on these points. Keith Ranieri was the leader of Nexium. This was billed as a multi-level marketing company, sort of a, a self-help kind of improve yourself uh, sort of uh, organization, uh, was of course something much more sinister. Keith Ranieri, uh, in October of last year, was sentenced to 120 years in prison. But that hasn't marked the end of this saga. We saw just recently former actress Alison Mack. She was drawn into this as well, played a big role in the victimization of other women. Uh, she was sentenced to three years in prison. Claire Bronfman of the wealthy Bronfman family was sentenced to two years in prison, but apparently, as we've learned, is still funding still financing Keith Ranieri's uh, legal battles. Another significant development this week, though, Keith Ranieri has been ordered by a judge to pay almost $3.5 million to victims. And I think that's an important statement as well. So someone who has followed all of this very closely has had his own run-ins and battles with uh, Keith Ranieri and Nexium over the years is uh, cult expert uh, Rick Ross, He's uh, on the line with us here this afternoon uh, to talk more about this. He's the director of the Cult Education Institute, author of Cults Inside and Out. Rick, great to have you back with us here. Welcome to the program. Hi, Rob. It's nice to join you. Yeah, and these are some important developments, uh, as I say. Let's start with the $3.5 million, though. Keith Ranieri, who, as people might have been watching, had a bit of a smirk on his face during this, this hearing. That vanished very quickly when he heard this number. How important was that decision? Well, it, it is important to the victims. Each victim, uh, for those that don't know, uh, many of these women were branded. They were tortured. They were physically mutilated. They have a scar on their body bearing the initials of Keith Ranieri that was burned into their flesh by a cauterizing iron without anesthetic. As Ranieri stood by and, and was aware of each incident uh, via you know, telephone and video. So yeah. each woman will receive $2,500 to remove that scar. And then many of the women were further abused. They were sex trafficked. They were they basically provided slave labor for Ranieri. Uh, one woman was raped. She was in prison. And these women received awards from, I think, around four hundred to 500000 to uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of a hundred thousand or more, uh, Sarah Edmondson, who was who was horribly mistreated and branded, who is a resident of Vancouver, and at one time very active with Nexium's branch in Canada in Vancouver, received a, a substantial award. And my former co-defendants in a lawsuit that lasted for fourteen years in which I was represented pro bono by attorneys for free, but my co-defendants spent more than $2 million. They were uh, refunded or they were allowed 250000 of that money because it was directly related to an effort by Nancy Salzman 
to destroy evidence rather than provide it in discovery. And so it's significant. It's 3.4 million out of the millions that Ranieri still has. Um, not so much to uh, Claire Bronkman, who, of course, is an extremely wealthy woman. And she and her sister actually provided Ranieri with over $100 million during the time that they were involved. Wow. Let's talk about Alison Mack here, um, who was well-known as an actress. She was on the TV show Smallville. She got drawn into Nexium. She rose very high in Nexium, And, you know, she was involved in these crimes. Whether we can argue that she was herself brainwashed or victimized by Keith Ranieri, she's been held accountable by the system. Three years in jail for Alison Mack. What did you make of that? Well, at first, I was kind of set back because... Uh, Allison Mack was a slave master over women who were mercilessly tortured and mistreated. Uh, but I believe that the evidence that she provided to the prosecutors, which they made clear, and I worked closely with those prosecutors and testified against Keith Ranieri in court, I think that she did good. She provided meaningful information that led to the conviction of Ranieri, specifically audio tapes of him that incriminated him completely in regards to the abuse of these women. Uh, so I think Allison Mack received an appropriate sentence of three years, and I do believe that she acted against her own best interest and was therefore under the undue influence of Keith Ranieri, who manipulated her and used her for years. Yeah, and it's interesting, and we, we see that. A lot of people, who you mentioned uh, Sarah Edmondson and um, India Oxenberg is, is another individual who's you know been very outspoken since leaving Nexium, uh, that they have regrets, and, and they did get drawn into this, and they did believe in Keith, and they did go along with things that they, they feel now after the fact that they shouldn't have gone along with. And this is a common theme, isn't it, when it, when it comes to cults and, and getting people out? Well, Keith Ranieri, who in my opinion, and in the opinion of many people, is a psychopath, uh, basically was uh, a genius in one thing, identifying the vulnerabilities of his victims, drilling down, cracking them open, and manipulating them. And he did this to woman after woman after woman. And in the end, uh, ironically, it was women who would bring him down. Uh, it was his former girlfriend, Tony Natale, uh, Sarah Edmondson, uh, and most notably, Catherine Oxenberg, who I work closely with, who decided that if it, if it took bringing Keith Ranieri down to free her daughter, India, who I've met since she's been free from Nexium, she's a wonderful young woman, yeah. that Catherine was determined she was going to take him down. She told me that. And I wondered if it could actually happen, because Keith Ranieri had gotten away with so much for so long. Tax fraud, racketeering, sex trafficking, uh, you name it, he was involved in it. That's why he got 120 years. And I was skeptical that Catherine really could bring him down, but she did it. And uh, she used her celebrity, her notoriety as an actress, as a a daughter of a princess, an, a relative of the British royal family. And she did that uh, expertly and adroitly, and she brought him down. And I'm very grateful to her for that. And that's, the, you know, the weird thing about it, Rick, I mean, Nexium has been brought down. Keith Ranieri is going to jail for the rest of his life. 
yet there are still those who believe in him. There was uh, some of his supporters uh, a few months ago were rallying outside of his prison. I mean, we mentioned, you know, Claire Bronfman, and she's still supporting him. Why do you think that is? Well, Claire Bronfman has been uh, an, an appendage to Keith Raniere and his his bank, his main enabler, since she was really young. I mean, she entered the group when she was in her early 20s. She invested 20 years of her life in this. And she treated her father, Edgar Bronfman Sr., horribly up until his death. He died with a broken heart regarding his, his daughter, Claire, and his daughter, Sarah. And, and they, they were largely estranged from him for many years because he would not support Nexium. And so I guess Claire has to live with that. Uh, it can, she can never have closure on it. She will always have to live with the fact that she treated her father horribly up until his death. Uh, she even spied on him for Keith and Harry. And meanwhile, he loved her. He was loyal to her. Uh, he was not involved in any plot to get Keith Raniere, despite all of the bizarre paranoid conspiracy theories that Raniere had. And so Claire Bronfman continues to give money, from what I understand, and continues to support him, and was uh, really kind of strident about it before the judge when she was sentenced, which I believe is why she was sentenced to as many years in prison as she is. Uh, she just feels so emotionally invested in this that she can't walk away. She is unable to deal with the reality that she was conned and that Ranieri's a fraud and that Nexium was ultimately a very bad thing. It wasn't this uh, uh, revolutionary philosophy that she thought it was. It, it wasn't a, a cure for the ills of the world. In fact, it was simply... The, the machinations of a madman who wanted to torture and abuse women, a man who really, at heart, is a misogynist. In terms of, you know, the, the strategy to, to bringing down this organization, the way the courts uh, have really come down hard on Keith Ranieri, do we have sort of a playbook? Do we have some precedent now when it comes to, to dealing with these kinds of cults? Yeah, I think the Southern District of New York did a fantastic job, and they basically uh, found that he was involved in uh, racketeering, and they used RICO statutes to bring him down. Uh, he also was involved, by the way, in, in uh, immigration violations, bringing people from other countries and abusing and using them in the United States. Uh, he had a kind of collective commune that he put together in Albany, New York. And there were people there from Canada. There were people from Mexico, from other parts of the world. And what the Southern District of, uh, of New York did was they held him accountable for each and every illegal act that he committed. It wasn't that he was guilty of brainwashing or being a cult leader. He committed crimes. And though Nexium was not a religious cult, so it did not use uh, tax-exempt immunity or religious separation of church and state in the United States uh, through the First Amendment to protect himself, he did not do that because he couldn't. He was running a for-profit private uh, company. But even if he had invoked some type of religious immunity, if it had been a religious cult, 
what the Southern District of New York demonstrated is that even if you are a religious cult, you are accountable for your acts. You may not do anything you wish in the name of your beliefs, and if you commit a crime and break the law, you will be prosecuted. And I, I wish that was happening across the board, but it certainly happened to Keith Ranieri. Absolutely. Much more at cultseducation.com. Rick, appreciate the insight, and uh, thanks so much for making some time for us here today. All right. Thank you very much, Rob. All the best. That's Rick Ross, uh, cult expert, the programmer, executive director of the Cult Education Institute, also author of the book Cults Inside and Out. And yeah, he's been very close to this uh, Nexium case, uh, dealing uh, in court, battling uh, Keith Ranieri and Nexium, and, and helping people get out. And in particular, India Oxenberg, and as he mentioned, uh, her mother Catherine played such a key role in, you know, starting this chain of events that's led to the fall of Nexium. we got a lot more to get to in the course of this hour here. My name is Rob Breckenridge. You're listening to the Chorus Radio Network. Welcome back. Rob Breckenridge with you on the Chorus Radio Network. We'll have some time for your calls before the top of the hour. A couple other things to get to as well. An interesting report today, though, looking at the future of the workforce in Canada, more particular, whether we've got the right laws in place as it pertains to labor laws, regulations, etc. And I don't think we were planning for this kind of a change, but the pandemic has thrust it upon us that telecommuting, working from home, remote work has become the reality for a lot of Canadians. I mean, it's hard to know exactly how many Canadians are going to be working from home after COVID, but, um, you know, it's very realistic to think that a substantial number will be. Are labor laws, are regulations, are they nimble enough, flexible enough to adjust to these new realities? They certainly weren't designed for this kind of a situation. So a new report from the Fraser Institute has a closer look at this, more at uh, FraserInstitute.org. Study our labor laws still relevant for teleworkers. Joining us on the line is Jason Clemens, Executive Vice President at the Fraser Institute. Jason, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thank you. My pleasure. Like I say, this isn't a change that maybe anybody anticipated. It's not a change that we took our time easing into. We sort of dove headlong into it as uh, you know we dealt with this pandemic. So we didn't really take the time to think about the implications, you know, in terms of workers' compensation or you know health and safety regulations, employment standards, all of that, did we? No, no, that's right. I mean, prior to the pandemic, there were certainly areas of the economy where there were people telecommuting. Uh, but it wasn't the kind of number uh, that we saw during the pandemic, which is roughly about half the workforce. Um, now, the estimates range, but generally speaking, it's it's gravitating to the expectation about that one in four to about one in five workers will remain uh, telecommuting post-pandemic once, once things get back to quote-unquote normal, um, which again is a substantial shift in terms of the the extent to which uh, our workforce is working remotely versus in an office or a, a formal place of business. Um, and so what's essentially happened since the beginning of last year when the pandemic really started is that I think everybody's been kind of looking the other way, including government, including um, the regulatory agencies, in terms of actually enforcing some of these laws that in some cases, clearly we're violating, or employers and employees are violating some of these laws. But we've sort of, I think, just been looking the other way as we try to get through the, the quote-unquote pandemic. 
the challenge now, though, is as things are starting to open up and return to normal, uh, what we are seeing is a substantial part of the workforce is staying either staying a full-time working remotely or moving to a hybrid model. And uh, as you said in the opening, that the reality is we just have a whole set of labor laws right across the country that are just not well designed or didn't even didn't even fathom um, a situation where this kind of share of our workforce would be working for home. And so the antiquated nature of those labor laws, which frankly was showing up before the pandemic, is now front and center. Well, when you say substantial, like, I mean, how substantial? Do we have any kind of a, an idea of what sort of numbers we're looking at in terms of the workforce? Sure. So roughly speaking, about uh, 40% of the workforce has the potential to work entirely from home. There's another 10% uh, that's estimated to be able to work partially from home. Um, Now, most of the survey data, uh, again, over, I guess, the last six months or so, indicates that the rates will be about half. Now, again, there's, there's some variance around those estimates, but even if you got a third of that, you still are talking about one in five to one in six workers working remotely, uh, either in a hybrid model or full-time, uh, and more so full-time uh, than in a hybrid model, which, again, is substantial relative to pre-pandemic numbers. So what are, what are the potential issues that this creates? Because you know, maybe some people look at it and say, well, what difference does it make if I'm sitting at my desk or I'm sitting at home? What what difference does that make in terms of you know all of these regulations that my workforce would would normally fall under? Yeah, great question. So th- they don't really make a difference right now because it seems to me we're just sort of ignoring them or looking the other way. Yeah. The regulatory agencies that enforce them, I think, to some extent, are just looking the other way. But at some point, and in fact, we already have indications. There's uh, two court cases. At some point, this is going to start getting litigated. Where. I think the easiest example for your listeners to think about is um, an employee sues the employer either for a violation of the workers' comp act because they were hurt at home while quote-unquote working or for violation of the health and safety regulations that apply to their workplace. And so now there's a whole set of questions about how employers can be held liable and or responsible for quote-unquote workplaces that exist in someone's home when they have no control over those spaces. So all the uncertainty around that will just be amplified if and when we start to get court decisions that are indicating, in fact, employers may have some level of liability. That then will lead to a whole bunch of decisions by employers in terms of are they willing to take on those extra liabilities that they will have to insure against, which means it added costs, or will, in fact, some employers start to revert back to saying, look, we didn't realize there were these kind of liabilities and costs, and so we need our workforce to actually return to the office, Um, which I think, frankly, a lot of Canadians have gotten very comfortable and indeed quite enjoy working from home, particularly when we think about um, people who work in larger cities where there's a commuting issue. So part of the challenge we're facing is all of these uncertainties um, both on the employer and the employee side of, of the equation. Well, and it's another interesting point I think you raise. And, you know, the, the decision to allow for telecommuting or remote work or flexibility, I mean, ideally it should be about what's best for the business, what's best for the worker. But if decisions are being made because of policy, that we can't do this because uh, of laws that exist, or we'd like to do that, but we can't, 
you know, should governments be kind of getting out of the way here? Do we have policy obstacles that exist? Yes, that's a great question. I, I think there's really two parts to the answer. The first is if, if governments just don't make it worse, that would be wonderful because there is really a risk that the governments, and I think there's some particular governments who could do this, would say, look, what we're just going to do is extend all the laws that were written in reference to working in an office or in a factory or a, a formal place of work, and we're extending them to work from home, which I think, and, and certainly the author of the study uh, concurs, that this would actually do great damage. I mean, if, if your listeners just think about an employer who all of a sudden is liable for the hours of work by their team, their breaks, uh, their overtime, but has no way to monitor that. I mean, that's just an administrative nightmare, if not an administrative impossibility, which could then, as I say, that could that could easily lead to some employers saying, well, if, if we're liable for this, workers have to come back to the office. So I think the first thing is just if governments, when they're looking, if they're even looking at these laws, first do no harm. Now, the second part of this is my, my sense of the landscape right now is that many governments are just punting this to the courts. And they're saying, we're not going to proactively review our labor laws and make sure they focus on flexibility and, and allowing employers and employees to figure out what's in their best circumstance or their best interest given different circumstances. That instead they're going to let the courts decide, which again, I think that introduces an enormous amount of uncertainty. And those decisions, if and when they're made, could lead to outcomes where employers are in positions where they can't let their workforce work from home because of all kinds of liabilities that would be imposed on them. Um, I certainly would say, you know, when we think about laws in workers' comp and in health and safety and employment standards, uh, there are a lot of perils in those laws if we start trying to apply them to home, which, again, right now we just don't have much information from governments um, in terms of them proactively looking at those laws and starting a process of trying to modernize uh, modernize those those various laws. Much more at FraserInstitute.org. Some very interesting, important issues. Jason Clemens, thanks so much for making some time for us here this afternoon. My pleasure. Thank you. All the best. Uh, Jason Clemens, uh, Executive Vice President of the Fraser Institute, FraserInstitute.org. So, yeah, I mean, if some of these numbers bear out, that we'll have up to 25% of the Canadian workforce uh, working remotely, either on a full-time or part-time basis... I think we are going to have to confront some of these issues. And I like the point he makes about just taking a, if nothing else, a do-no-harm approach. Let's not put obstacles in place that kind of force workers or employers to make a certain decision. One of the other sides, though, too, and the, the study talks about it, you might even have issues at the municipal level. Could zoning regulations, for example, get in the way if somebody's working from home on a full-time basis, for example? So, yeah, there, there's some potential issues that arise from this. And, you know, I think a lot of companies, a lot of workers, there's, there's going to be a lot of navigating here and figuring this out as we go. So this pandemic threw us a curveball in that sense. And uh, as we start to come out of this, does everything just shift back to normal? Or do we take some of what the last year and a half has presented us and say, you know what? It turns out that this makes sense to have this as an option.
So an interesting initiative announced today, a partnership between business and the Alberta government with the aim of continuing to increase vaccination rates. So today, a mobile vaccination clinic, the first in Alberta, is being launched, partnership between Alberta Health and uh, what's uh, known now as the Industry for Vaccination Coalition. So joining us to talk a bit more about uh, this clinic, about this partnership, and about this uh, broader initiative very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Scott Crockett, who is uh, Vice President of Communications and External Relations at the Business Council of Alberta, involved in the uh, IVF Coalition, Industry for Vaccination Coalition. Scott, thanks so much for joining us here. Welcome to the program. Rob, thanks so much for having me. So talk a bit about how this uh, partnership came together, and, and I guess you know further to that, from the Business Council of Alberta's perspective, wh- why this is so important. Well, you know, the Business Council of Alberta is a group of uh, over 100 of the the sort of largest businesses in the province. And uh, in the middle of the pandemic, a number of those businesses came together and said, what can we do to help the province recover, to help drive up vaccination rates? And so for the last uh, number of months, we've been working as part of that industry for vaccination coalition that you mentioned with the provincial government on a variety of initiatives to try and, uh, you know, improve vaccination rates and speed them up, encourage employees to get vaccinated. And over the last uh, number of weeks, one of the opportunities that came forward is that while Alberta's vaccine rollout has thus far been really successful and we've hit some strong numbers, there are certainly pockets within the province that haven't had the same uh, level of access to vaccines. Folks who maybe live farther away from vaccine clinics or remote work sites, and that there is the opportunity that we could bring vaccines to them. So the uh, the business community kind of got together and uh, did their part, you know, donating a bus and uh, staff to vaccinate and even even diesel fuel from Suncor. Uh, and the government of Alberta came in and did their part uh, providing the vaccines uh, for this initiative. So we're excited to get it on the road to a number of those uh, sort of less served areas of the province. Yeah, and I think that's been part of the challenge in Alberta is, you know, getting vaccines into some of these more remote communities. So, um, yeah, I think this is the first time this kind of a, an approach has been tried here in Alberta, right? Absolutely. This is uh, yeah. this is the first uh, mobile vaccination clinic for Alberta, and, uh, and to the best of our knowledge, it's the second in Canada. Uh, Quebec has been employing something similar, uh, as we understand it, uh, with some really good success. And so we think that uh, that access is is part of it. You know, there's folks who live maybe more than 50k away from from the near nearest pharmacy, and some of those folks might not even have a vehicle. And if we can uh, if we can bring vaccination straight to them at no cost, uh, we know that that's going to increase the vaccine number. And, and that, frankly, uh, that, that's good for all Albertans. It means that we can hopefully uh, save some more lives and also get, uh, get back to more regular life and get the economy back uh, as quickly as possible. Well, that's the thing. And I mean, yeah, I mean, Alberta's open. I mean, we've we've ended uh, provincial health restrictions, but I, I think it's part of it's about taking that longer term view. Right. I mean, the, the higher we can get these vaccine numbers, the better off we're going to be in, in protecting those gains, I would imagine. You're absolutely right uh, there, Rob. Uh, you know, at, at this point, every individual percentage point higher uh, makes a significant difference in terms of the overall protection level for uh, society. You know, we're, we're well into the 70s for first dose at this stage, and we want to just keep that number ticking up. And importantly, this, this clinic, this bus, that's what it is, uh, can provide first and second doses. And, and, you know, we're at about the 50% mark or into the 50s for folks that have received both doses. So that's one of the other opportunities is to maybe roll up to some large work sites where there's a lot of folks working and uh, and help them get their second dose. And then even beyond that, you mentioned the long-term view. Uh, that, you know, it's not entirely clear yet, but it seems likely that 
this problem of COVID may be something that we're managing for uh, for a longer term period. It might become seasonal. And in that mm. case, uh, we need to be ready to to deploy some of these these innovative ideas like uh, like using buses to bring vaccination to people if it's going to turn into kind of like a, a annual flu shock campaign. Right. And I mean, you know, ultimately, the, these vaccines are about protecting health, protecting the healthcare system. And we're certainly seeing the payoff of that and, and hospitalization numbers coming down. But, you know, in a way, this this is I mean, it's an economic tool, isn't it, as well? This is also about protecting the economy. Absolutely. And I think that that's, you know, uh, the businesses who are involved in this really got involved for for the health and safety reason first to help protect lives. But they also see the long term economic benefit to uh, if Alberta can be a place that recovers uh, more quickly than, than elsewhere around the world, and, and it seems like we're on that trajectory, then our economy can come out stronger and, and that can actually benefit us in the long run. So we really see some, some long-term economic positives to this as well as the, the kind of health and safety ones. And I think that's what the government sees too. And, and to me, this is a unique example of the way that, uh, that the culture can kind of work in Alberta, where business steps up and government steps up and we can make some things happen that might not happen elsewhere as a result. So in terms of now this mobile clinic and where it's going to go or you know, whether people can get it steered in a certain direction, how, how's this all going to work or where can people find out more? Absolutely. So we've got a number of what we're calling missions. The first few areas that it will be deploying to set out for the early days of next week. Uh, and a number of other uh, places have, have made requests to be sort of next up on the list. But we're absolutely looking for additional, you know, communities, uh, work sites, uh, other folks who have a, a chunk of people in their area that might benefit from having vaccination brought to them. And so uh, at the Business Council of Alberta's website, uh, you can fill out a really quick form to request it to your work place or to your community and we'll try and slot that into a, um, a route that just makes sense as we travel around the province and uh, by early next week we'll even have a live map of where the bus is everywhere in the province so that if someone's interested in, in grabbing a vaccination when it's near to them they can see when it's likely to be uh, to be headed their way. All right more at businesscouncilab.com slash vaccination. Scott thanks so much for making some time for us here this afternoon much appreciated. Rob, thank you for shining a light on this. Appreciate it. All the best. Uh, Scott Crockett uh, with the Business Council of Alberta, part of the Industry for Vaccination campaign, businesscouncilab.com slash vaccinations. So this is one way of reaching maybe some of those more remote communities or work sites. And uh, so I think it's kind of a unique approach in trying to get those numbers up. Uh, a couple of other points people have raised here this afternoon. This one says, what about the Novavax vaccine? A vaccine that uses more traditional vaccine technology sounds like maybe there are fewer adverse reactions. It might seem more appealing to people. I'd love to hear if and when this vaccine is coming to Alberta. Well, obviously, Alberta doesn't approve vaccines on its own. Uh, so it would have to be a decision by Health Canada. I'm curious as well um, where things stand with that. I, I do think that that could make a difference, actually. And interestingly enough, Novavax is going to be manufacturing vaccines, its vaccines in Canada later this year. So it would seem odd if, you know, we rolled out the red carpet for them, welcome them in, make your vaccines here, but not approve it. So I think we will. But, yeah, I'd, I'd love to see some more urgency to that. I think that could go a long way. Another one says you want to get vaccine numbers up. Ask Stephen Harper to speak publicly to ask people to get vaccinated. Majority of people that don't get vaccinated is because they don't trust in our government. They don't trust Trudeau. Well, I mean, do they trust Jason Kenney? I don't know. Would Stephen Harper's voice be uh, more impactful than Jason Kenney's voice? 
I don't know. I, maybe it would be. I'm not sure. But no, it's it's interesting. I don't think Stephen Harper's against vaccines, and maybe he has encouraged vaccination, and, and perhaps I've missed it. But uh, it couldn't hurt. I agree. But up the top in this hour, uh, an ongoing conversation around Calgary's downtown. We're a long way from the heyday of downtown when space was at a premium. Uh, we've got a big vac- vacancy problem, office vacancy problem in the downtown. And it's uh, approaching levels really not seen in North America, North American major cities, since the Great Depression. That's kind of an ominous way of putting it, but I, I think it also underscores the scope of the problem. And look, as we've seen with the uh, oil and gas industry, as commodity prices uh, have staged a bit of a recovery, things are different now. You know, these companies are a lot leaner. We're, we're not going to see the same kind of job boom that we've seen in the past. And, you know, given how much of that job boom was linked to Calgary's downtown, it poses a big obstacle, I think, in solving this problem. So it means getting creative, thinking outside of the box or, you know, I mean, there's all kinds of different ideas out there. There's a new report out this week, though, looking at uh, the scope of the problem. Uh, Avison Young finds that the office tower vacancy rate in downtown Calgary broke a new record in the second quarter of uh, this year, now sits at 29.2% and could hit 30% sometime this year. So joining us to talk a bit more about uh, the scope of the problem, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Susan Thompson, who's the insight manager for the Alberta region uh, for Avison Young, avisonyoung.com. Susan, thanks so much for joining us here. Welcome to the program. Thank you, Rob. So things uh, certainly not going in the right direction would appear. So tell us a bit more about uh, what's been observed uh, so far in 2021. Obviously, Calgary's not in a good situation. Nobody's going to say very many positive things about the vacancy rate. The good news is this quarter, we did trend on our more optimistic forecast. So we usually put out a, an optimistic, a reasonable, and a pessimistic. So we did track on the optimistic line. So it was a little lower than we anticipated, but we're still seeing uh, space being given back to the market as more vacancy. So it seems likely that we're, we're going to hit 30%, but when you talk about those various ranges, um, you know, there's some concern it could top out at maybe around 34%. That would be, I think, a North American record from what I understand. So what do we see as bottom here? So real estate decisions take a long time to play out. So we're still dealing with pandemic and worked from home decisions that have been made, as well as the yeah. economic slowdown that Calgary's been dealing with for the last six years. You can't flick a light switch and change your real estate footprint. So we're still, it takes a while for those to play out. So we're anticipating the next 18 to 24 months, we're probably going to continue to see vacancy rise. But after that, we're expecting the tides to start to turn again. Well, what might be driving that? I mean, as you say, we, we've got challenges related to the pandemic and, you know, the potential that people are still going to work from home. And that's obviously not uniquely a Calgary situation. The uh, situation in the oil and gas industry is another big factor. So what, what might start to tip things in the right direction? So we are going through a heavy period of mergers and acquisitions. The good news out of that, yes, they do reduce their footprint and there tends to be some layoffs as there's some duplication. However, once you get through that period, those companies are typically in a much more stable position and they start to grow again. We're also seeing a lot of activity from agencies such as Calgary Economic Development where they're genuinely working to 
bring in new companies as well as grow and retain the existing industries here alongside new industries. So there's a lot of things at work trying to help Calgary turn the tide. In terms of how Calgary stacks up, though, I mean, there are other big cities in North America that have connections to the oil and gas industry, other downtowns, as mentioned, struggling with pandemic-related uh, issues and vacancies, but it seems Calgary kind of stands alone in, in seeing these kinds of numbers. So Calgary's uh, a very office-based employment market. So when we look at Canada, at least, Calgary's got about 5 million square feet per 100,000 people of population. The other five big cities in Canada, so Toronto, Vancouver, Ottawa, Montreal, Edmonton, they've got two to three million square feet of office space per 100,000 square feet, or 100,000 people. That means we feel changes in the office market much more significantly. So the fact that we've gone through what we've been through in the last years, the last six years, we've been dealing with a lot. Yeah, we have. And I mean, you know, it's interesting, too, looking at these numbers that, you know, we're around 29% vacancy coming up on 30. But that's not to say that you go building to building and there's 30% vacancy. I mean, it obviously varies from building to building. But there are, I think, a handful of, of office towers in, in downtown Calgary, correct me if I'm wrong, that are completely empty. So we do have five in downtown that are completely empty and another seven that have at least 75% vacancy. So that's 12 buildings there. However, we track 170 buildings in downtown Calgary, over 20,000 square feet. So it's not a big number that are empty. And on the flip side, there's 38 out of that 170 that are full. There's no vacancy whatsoever. So on average, buildings tend to track around the vacancy rate. So it's not fair to say that, you know, one in three buildings is empty downtown. It's not true. All of the towers have some level of vacancy with a few exceptions and obviously i mean you know there's the question of of getting workers into those offices but there's also been the conversation around maybe you know some of the offices shouldn't be offices anymore i mean one way to bring down the vacancy rate would be to convert that space into something else i mean is that something that there's been conversation about what's your sense There's a lot of conversations around building conversions and adaptive reuse taking place. Obviously, the city of Calgary has come out with their greater downtown plan that is looking at a number of facets to try and improve downtown, including funding some conversions of buildings. And we've already seen some conversions take place. We've got examples of uh, home space where they're converting an old office building into affordable housing. We've got an office tower that was converted to a hotel We've got, over time, we've seen things like office to post-secondary. So there's a lot of really interesting approaches by various investors and owners to buildings to say, what can we do with this building and how do we make more complete communities downtown? Because there's other uses that really do bring a vibrancy in. So they're really trying to think about this problem in a lot of different directions. Very interesting. Susan, we'll leave it there. Appreciate making some time for us here this afternoon. Thanks so much for this. Thank you. All the best. That is uh, Susan Thompson, uh, Insight Manager for the uh, Alberta region for Avis and Young. So uh, avisandyoung.com, they released this report today looking at where things stand. So they pegged the uh, office vacancy rate at 29.2%. Uh, there are other assessments that already have it above 30%.
But based on Avis and Young and their numbers, uh, they put it at 29.2%, but say it's likely to hit 30% at some point this year, probably get a little bit over that. But then things will start to turn around, at least based on their forecasts. But there's a, a lot of work to be done, right, given the number that big. There's a quote from uh, Susan, one of the... Uh, one of the articles on this says, I sit on conference calls with my global counterparts around the world, and they all shake their heads and say, that's not a number I can wrap my head around. So, yeah, look, I mean, other energy cities, uh, Houston, as an example, have been through these downturns. And downtowns right across North America have been dealing with the impact of the pandemic. And you just don't have full office towers. You have a lot of people working from home. And we talked about it this week. Probably a lot of people are going to continue to work from home. So that exacerbates the problem for every downtown. But when you got a situation as acute as Calgary's already is, uh, that's not helpful. So, yeah, there's been a lot of focus on how do we attract companies back to, to the downtown? How do we attract companies to Calgary in the first place? And then hopefully steer them toward downtown. You know, supply and demand uh, it certainly changes the price equation a lot. Companies are happening to, to be looking at downtown. But, um, yeah, it's, it's a big number. Anyway, your thoughts on what needs to be done to, to address the problem and how much priority should be given to the downtown. And I think as we've seen with the property taxes and, and what it's meant to businesses outside the down co downtown core, if downtown's suffering, the rest of the city feels it. But there are other parts of the city that, that are struggling too. And look, if businesses are coming to Calgary, are willing to set up shop in Calgary, does it matter if they pick the downtown or somewhere else? I mean, you know, jobs are jobs, right? Offices are offices. But I think a city's, you know, vibrance, its well-being, I mean, it's, it's hard to overcome, you know, having a, a downtown suffering. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770chqr.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.